Every day, our world gets a little more connected, but a little further apart. But then, there are moments that remind us to be more human. Thank you for calling Amica Insurance. Hey, uh, I was just in an accident. Don't worry, we'll get you taken care of. At Amica, we understand that looking out for each other isn't new or groundbreaking. It's human. Amica, empathy is our best policy. Meet Stacy. Stacy's on the hunt for a new pair of trendy glasses. Call me picky, but I just can't find the one. Luckily for Stacy, Walmart Vision has virtual try on. Now she can try on hundreds of frames virtually, then upload her prescription and get new glasses delivered right to her door. Really? <laughs> yeah, really. Well, the hunt just took a turn for the better. Buy your next pair of glasses with virtual try on from Walmart. Welcome to Easy Eye Care. Welcome to your Walmart. Restrictions apply. See walmart.com for details. The Bowery Boys, episode 90, King's College, Columbia University. Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey. The Bowery Boys is brought to you by Eurocheapo.com. Eurocheapo editors personally visit and review the best budget hotels in Europe. Now with hotels in New York City. On the web at Eurocheapo.com. Hi there. Welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young. And I'm Tom Myers. We are back again with another episode. Our We can call this one our back-to-school episode. Well, you know, it is. It, it's after Labor Day. The kids have gone back to school, and it has us thinking about things academic. And today's topic, Columbia University, has a special place for Tom, in fact, because he is a graduate of our topic today. Despite those rumors, I did graduate about... Uh, <laughs> Well, over 10 years ago now from Columbia College, which we mm-hmm. will get into the, the differences of the different schools. Distinctions. Um, and I'll tell you, going through this uh, research for the show made me a little nostalgic. Well, it's exciting that we get to talk about something that one of us had this connection to. It's like, what if I graduated from the Chelsea Hotel? <laughs> I think you have. Gra- I think we've all graduated from the Chelsea Hotel. But what's really unique about this topic is it goes from the British era of New York all the way to today. That That is a lot of history to cover. I was telling Greg before we hit record, because I'm editing this show this week, I'm going to be cracking a whip so that we can fly through 250. <laughs> 50 years of history. But we have a lot of great stories, wonderful anecdotes, and a lot of colorful characters. So take a seat and open up your books to a history of King's College and Columbia University. All right, Greg. Well, while we all think that we know a lot about Columbia, why don't you situate us this week? I'll start us. Yes, it is, of course, a private Ivy League university. It's located in Morningside Heights, which is the upper north portion of Manhattan. It's actually one of the highest elevations in the city. On a map, it's sort of above the Upper West Side. They often call it the Academy Acropolis, because Columbia University is one of many learning institutions up there. It's currently about 24,000 students. There are over 3,000 faculty members there as well. So there's a lot of bustle going on there, a lot of book learning. So you're situating us around the modern-day Columbia, but we're also talking, obviously, about 
Columbia's other locations and what it was before it became Columbia. We're, we're, we're going to wind back the clock here, actually, to 1754, but that is so many years, and it's, it's astounding to realize how thousands, thousands of people have gone through the doors of Columbia University and its predecessor, King's College, and not just normal Joes. We're talking presidents, policymakers, famous journalists, lawyers, judges, you know, celebrities. Podcasters. <laughs> Podcasters. Um, so we are going to rewind the clock, as I said, back to the days when the British flag was flying over New York City. So we're going back to 1754, and we're going quite a ways downtown, actually, to the area around Trinity Church, which is in Lower Broadway by Wall Street. Other colleges had already opened their doors. In fact, Harvard has been around since 1636, Yale 1701, and Princeton 1742. It's a lot old institutions. So in the early 1700s, New Yorkers were starting to get a little bit of an inferiority complex. <laughs> I mean, why didn't they have their own institution of higher learning? Sure. Weren't they important enough? Well, and New York was also uh, growing larger and larger. You know, it, it still wasn't the vast metropolis that it would become, but this is just another badge of honor, especially as it was part of a as part of the British colony. And I think that the alarm bell really went off when Princeton opened its doors not far away from New York, and the city leaders said, "Stop! Enough is enough. We need our own college." At least some did. Others were too busy with their commerce and their trade to even care about what was going on. So how did it first get settled? And how did it get settled around this particular place? Well, in 1751, there was a lottery commission that was formed in order to raise money. The city fathers had already agreed that there needed to be a school. Who was going to pay for it? Where was it going to be? Who was it going to be affiliated with? That is, which religion would it be affiliated with? Mm -hmm. These were all questions that were up in the air. William Livingston was a prominent lawyer who was appointed to this uh, lottery commission to drum up money. Was this? I mean, this wasn't like a lottery ball machine where there. Were, I mean, this was like people bought tickets, I suppose. But there were still disputes over where it would be located. Would it be in New York City or would it be out in the countryside or in some small town? And, you know, there was a thought that New York had the power to corrupt young minds. And the people who would be going to the school were, for the most part, the sons, exclusively sons, uh -huh. of the wealthy class and the, the elite of society. So these were people that were the next generation of leaders, and you didn't want them corrupted by a city like New York while they were trying to learn their Latin. Certainly understandable. But in the end, New York won out, and largely because of the financial backers. The people who were giving money to build the school were located in New York, and they wanted the students to be there as well. And ultimately, their children could be close to them, and they could also monitor their, them, even though they could also be debauched. <laughs> debauched. But now, what religion would it be affiliated with? Harvard was affiliated with Puritans. Yale had the New Light Congregationalists, and Princeton had its Presbyterians. What would this New York college be affiliated with? Well, many people in New York and back in England thought of New York as sort of the heart of English America, a royal colony. It was led by the Anglican Church, the Church of England. So they reached a compromise that religious service would be non-denominational at the school, but the president would always be a member of the Church of England, 
and students would not have to pass a test, a religious test, for entry to the school. This kind of seems like a good deal for the Anglican Church here, because this isn't an, one of their own organizations, but they can, they'll always have one foot into this particular school to see what's going on. Well, and the school would have a foot into the church, because the church, the last bit of the compromise is that the church would have to grant land to the college. Oh, right. So King's College, as it would be called, would actually be located on the grounds of Trinity Church its first year. By the way, remember the Lottery Commission and our friend Livingston. Livingston was so livid by this whole thing that he actually left. He became a big opponent of the school because he was not an Anglican and went so far as to persuade the colony to drop their support for the whole charter. So before a school book is even cracked open... Right, in July of 54. There is all of this controversy already going on. Right, from the beginning. So how are these first days of school here at King's College? There were eight students and one teacher who taught all of the classes. Uh, The teacher was Samuel Johnson, who was a scholar in the colony, and he was an Anglican minister, of course. He taught all of the classes that summer, although his son, William Samuel Johnson, helped out in the fall. And where again was this campus? I've, you know, I've seen reference to it as the, quote, Park Place campus, and it's right here next to Trinity Church, correct? Well, it's a little confusing, because in 1755, Trinity Church gave King's College a piece of land that was bordered by Church Street, Barclay Street, Murray Street, and the Hudson River. Can you imagine that? So it was actually shorefront property then. Hmm. Prime, prime real estate. Mm-hmm. Now, five years later, in 1760, they moved to three acres of land that was at Park Place overlooking the Hudson. Oh, gotcha. And that was a, a much more elaborate setup because they had a small park, a three-story stone building. They had 24 rooms, in fact, for students to live in, to eat in. Sounds kind of like a lot of room, considering they started with eight students. Roomy. Very roomy. The important date is in 1754. King's College was formed by a royal charter that was signed by Governor James DeLancey, granted by King George II to, quote, promote liberal education. And it was designated the College of the Province of New York in the city of New York, known by the name of King's College. On April 19, 1995, a federal building in Oklahoma City was destroyed in a domestic terrorist attack. Just days after the bombing, America discovered the perpetrator was right-wing extremist Timothy McVeigh, whose mindset and values are still very present today. It's an American tragedy, but one I still remember very vividly. But there is so much more to the story than what you might remember. Take a deeper look into this moment of history with the podcast Homegrown OKC, hosted by Jeffrey Tubin and based on his book. The Homegrown OKC podcast is about better understanding the political environment in our country today. In particular, I found fascinating all the original archival footage used in the show, sounds which brought me back to that time, but with a richer understanding of events. These episodes were thrilling to listen to. That's Homegrown OKC. To listen, search for Homegrown OKC in your podcast app. That's Homegrown OKC. Now, we know the names of some of the first students, especially as we get on here to the 1760s and the 1770s. In the class of 1764 was John Jay, who was the first Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. And a couple years later, Alexander Hamilton 
attended King's College, but we'll get into him in a second. Yeah. Robert Livingston attended, as did Go- Gouverneur Morris. Oh, yes. Our, our old Gouverneur. Gouverneur. Love Mr. Morris. <laughs> Monsieur Morris. Um, around 1776, though, you know, something happens in New York City, and it's called the Revolution. Right. Now, you know how college students are. When they get around a sort of um, a political struggle, and there's no bigger political struggle than the fight for independence of the colonies versus the British. King's College, most students were actually still loyalists. Loyalists, right, because, of course, they were from loyalist families, right, in in New York. But there were those handfuls, those scallywags, you know, who were... Rabble-rousers. Those rabble-rousers, very passionate young people who decided who got caught up in the war effort. Many of the names, in fact, that you mentioned are our founding fathers, Alexander and John Jay and Gouverneur. There was, in fact, a, a volunteer militia in the con- Continental Army comprised just of King's College students, and that was known as the Hearts of Oak. Some of these militia members uh, would use the St. Paul Chapel, which is right up the street. They would use that, that graveyard as a training ground, and they would even wear these very, I'm sure, quite nice handmade green uniforms just for themselves to distinguish themselves. It's an exciting thought, really. One of the most rabble-rousiest of these college students was, of course, Alexander Hamilton. He would write anonymous tracks. He would go down to Bowling Green, right at the tip of the island, and he would give these speeches against the British and how we needed independence for the colonies. And you have to wonder how this was sitting with the teachers back at the Anglican-dominated school. Well, you know, every school has has a certain radical element. Um, in this case, the radical element happens to be on the side for liberty and freedom for this particular country. However, what I like about Alexander is that he's radical in a sense, but also very reasonable. For instance, the president of the school at the, by this time, his name was Miles, Miles Cooper, Cooper right. um, was, was caught up in a fray, was caught up in a, a group of protesters. Because he was a loyalist. Yes, and he was in fact chased by this mob who wanted to tar and feather him. Alexander actually stood in and prevented the crowd from causing Miles any harm. Miles shipped out of New York after that. He wasn't going to be around this anymore. So, in fact, what happened is that there was no president to the college because Miles shipped off to Great Britain. Alive because of Alex. Alive because of Alex. So, in the spring of 1776, there were supposed to be four graduates of King's College that year. But because there was no president to oversee the ceremony, it was canceled. So, of course, that was a very tumultuous summer. The British sweep in. The Continental Army is chased out of Manhattan. No surprise, King's College is closed. You know, there's no time to get an education. The main campus here, the one that was on Park Place, is actually turned into a military hospital for the British. We're going to speed up here to 1783, of course, because when the British are officially kicked out of town and everyone kind of comes back to the city, some of the former students of King College return. Of course, they're in a much different place now in their lives and careers. People like Alexander Hamilton, people like James Duane, who was also a King's College student and became the first mayor of New York City post the occupation of the British. Well, they decided that they wanted to restart the school. They Under, of course, a completely different regime, a brand new aesthetic, they decided to rename the school. 
at the time, there was this phrase that was sort of an embodiment of, of America. In fact, it was a feminine body of American uh, of America, the, the term Columbia. You know, it was, of course, derived from the name of Christopher Columbus, Christopher Columbus, who, of course... <laughs> Christopher Columbia. Christopher Columbia, who, at the, you know, at the time, everyone thought had discovered North America. So it made a natural sense to rename this new school with this new fresh energy and call it Columbia College. Now, this new college received a charter as a state entity and reopened in May of 1784. The first class of this new Columbia, we've mentioned this before in our DeWitt Clinton podcast. Mm -hmm. Go back to that for some more information. But there were eight students in that original class, and one of them was DeWitt Clinton. And DeWitt was kind of the key to success of Columbia College at this time, because first of all, his father was James Clinton. James Clinton was a Revolutionary War hero. And of course, his uncle is George Clinton, the governor of New York. George, in fact, had been conveniently elected as chancellor of this brand new school. DeWitt actually was on his way to go to Princeton. He had gone to Princeton for two years, on his way back. This would be a huge slap in the face to New York. We can't have the New York governor's nephew going off to a a school in another state. So they convinced him to go to Columbia College. He actually graduated at age 17. Of course. And by the way, did you know, I mean, because these were were wealthy people who were going to college here, and they were well-connected people because they were able to pay the average year tuition of Columbia at this particular time, which was, of course, $15. Okay. (laughs) How much... (laughs) <laughs> but th- th- wait, fifteen dollars. Tell me, Greg. Fifteen dollars in seventeen eighty was was just not that much. Was was not that much. I mean, think of how. Think, let's think, not talk about. Think how of much when you went to school. No, that fifteen dollars. How far that took you? It took me on a bus to the airport. <laughs> that was about it, right? Yeah, yeah. Now it did not. Obviously, it's a private institution. It did not stay a state chartered school for long. Four years later, they switched that because the school had many other matters at hand. Um, it kind of neglected the school, so. A private private charter was then granted and has been, since then, always in the private domain and, and of course, completely shed any religious affiliation since then as well. One of the first presidents of Columbia, I should add, was this guy, William Samuel Johnson, who was the son of the other Samuel Johnson that you had just mentioned previously, who was the president of King's College. So there's a little bit of continuity here. He also happens to be one of the original signers of the U.S. Constitution, did you know? And he actually served up until 1800. Which brings us to the 19th century, when things get a little rocky at the beginning. Now, in 1801, Benjamin Moore became the fifth president of Columbia. Greg, do you remember this name, Benjamin Moore? <laughs> we just Moore? talked about Benjamin Moore in the Chelsea Hotel episode. Chelsea, yes. Yeah, he's not, this is not the paint Benjamin Moore. No. This is the Benjamin Moore who owns the estate in Chelsea, correct? Correct, thank you. And I'm only mentioning him because he was the first graduate to become the president of Columbia. Mm. Moving on. Now, things got a little difficult in the early 1800s, specifically with finances. Columbia was, at this point, a 
Federalist School. As in the political party of Alexander Hamilton and John Adams. Right, it made a lot of sense. And, you know, when the, the nation and the state had a Federalist bent to it, Columbia was in a prominent spot. You're well, nicely, right? things swung over to the Republican side, and there was a little bit of a friction with Columbia. And so it lost a certain amount of prominence in the early 1800s. It also lost some funding because, well, new schools were being opened up in the state, and Columbia had to compete for funding, as you were just saying. Mm-hmm. Sometimes, actually, the state only granted it real estate, which it thought was worthless, um, in lieu of actual funding, which would turn out to be a boon for Columbia. In 1807, the medical school of Columbia sort of split off, actually broke its affiliation with Columbia College, and went off and joined, uh, merged with the College of Physicians and Surgeons in New York, Mm -hmm. which was kind of a slap in the face. And in 1811, there was what we will call the scandal of of the riotous commencement at Columbia. What kind of drama was happening there? (laughs) Well, there was a student named John B. Stevenson, and the faculty refused to give Stevenson his diploma because he was a Republican, and the faculty was largely Federalist. Uh And he wanted to deliver a speech at the commencement on the right of the people to instruct their representatives. Mm -hmm. This was the sort of thing that could cause a scandal (laughs) back in the day. Um, Times have changed. He wasn't actually permitted to deliver this this speech at commencement, but he did it anyway, Greg. He stood up there in Trinity Church during the service, and he gave his speech. People started hooting and hollering. The students started stomping on the floor, and the professors sort of charged the stage to remove this, this... Firebrand. Well, it caused a stir in the papers, obviously, as did the ensuing trial, because again, remember, these were well-connected kids acting out against their superiors in a church, no less. Yes. DeWitt Clinton, at this point, was the mayor of New York, and he called the riots, and I quote, the most disgraceful, the most unprecedented, the most unjustifiable, the most outrageous that has ever come with the knowledge of the court. <laughs> um, little did he know. Yeah, I think that, <laughs> he might have overstated that. <laughs> I, I think he exaggerated the, perhaps the importance of that particular speech <laughs> um, on the merits of republicanism. So that was the riot of eighteen eleven. Something happens in the city around this time which changes the fate of Columbia almost forever. And then, of course, which and this has changed a lot of people's fate is, of course, that commissioner's plan that changes right. the grid of the city. Right. Columbia had this useless plot of land in what would later be, of course, Midtown Manhattan. This was... Granted by the state. This was granted by the state. Now, we also brought this up in a Rockefeller Center podcast. This was called the Elgin Botanical Garden. It was America's very first botanical garden and had been plopped down here by a former Columbia student and professor named David Hosick. It didn't make any money. It was kind of a failure. The land was sold to the state, and the state, in turn, went and gave it to Columbia. Columbia was just like, what are we going to do with this? We don't want to maintain this garden. It's not valuable land. All of a sudden, you know, the city is being developed up the island. This land is suddenly very, very valuable. And meanwhile, the land of their current campus, downtown around Park Place, was getting a little too crowded, it was industrial, it was noisy, and that land itself was perhaps a little too valuable for their current use. So the trustees of the college were thinking, well, we could really use a new location 
should we move our university up to this this garden, which they refer to as the, quote, upper estate? Yes. Well, turns out that they didn't need to. Because right at the last minute, now in 1841, they found out that there was actually a piece of land that was for sale between 49th and 50th at Madison, which was a, quote, deaf and dumb asylum. Yes, the Institute of the Deaf and Dumb. Right. This piece of land was for sale for $100,000, and the trustees managed to negotiate that down to $63,000. So a good they, deal. Can you imagine for this whole block? Yeah, that's, and, it's, and it's right next to the land that they own. Right, just two blocks away. But wait, it gets better. Then Columbia turned around and sold off their land downtown for $600,000. <laughs> so they basically sold their land downtown for about 10 times the amount of the purchase price for the land they were moving. To. So all of a sudden, Columbia's the, trust, up. the trustees of Columbia are kind of seeing ways to self-finance some of their endeavors by using real estate. They were feeling a little pressure, Greg, also from other universities that were opening in the state and around town, specifically in 1831 with the foundation of the University of the City of New York, which would later become NYU. New York University. NYU, let's just call it that for now, was trying to attract the sons of merchants and the middle class. It was, quote, open to all. It was open, you know, regardless of national origin, religious belief, or social background. Columbia was being painted into this corner as a sort of elitist institution, so it widened its curriculum a bit. It adjusted it to include a literary and scientific course that would <laughs> appeal to the same group of students. They were initially frightened, by the way, when they moved up to 49th Street, that it would be a little bit too northern for people. It would be a little bit too out of the way. So what they did is they lowered the tuition price. Now, it had been at this around this time ninety dollars. So it had jumped from fifteen to ninety. <laughs> so but they lowered it to seventy-five dollars. And so this is around eighteen fifty seven, seventy-five dollars. So they made they made the move and the tuition decrease in eighteen fifty seven? They sure did. And it worked. Um they had about uh, within a few years they would have a, th a thousand students. So with all of this new money, they had all these opportunities to grow and attract more students. So for instance, in 1858, they founded the Columbia Law School, which was founded by the influential jurist at the time, Theodore Dwight. 1864, just a few years later, was the debut of the engineering school. Right. They didn't call it the engineering school. They call it the Columbia School of Mines. <laughs> as in like ma as in mining. Mining. Yes. Right. Not not miming. Miming. No not miming. Right. Now you had mentioned the College of the College of Physicians and Surgeons has having split from Columbia. It was yes. still affiliated but it wasn't part of the official school. It has a separate campus. It moves up to 23rd and 4th Avenue, or what we call today Park Avenue South. Now, Tom, this is why we do this podcast, because... Wait, 23rd and Park. 23rd and Park is when I first moved to New York City, my first apartment stands on the land of where the College of Physicians and Surgeons were. I mean... That's incredible. Th these, these kinds of strange coincidences are why we do this podcast today, it, that I was somehow living in the same area space as a hallowed medical facility from the 19th century. 
But the college continues to grow at this time. In the 1860s is the formation of, Co- of Columbia's very first sports team. By 1870, they would actually have a football team. Their first game, of course, they lost to Rutgers. And establishing a tradition that Columbia doesn't need to win its football games. It's about the show. <laughs> it's about the intellectual fervor. In 1877, the Columbia Daily Sports Spectator, which is the student newspaper, would first start publication. It's one of the oldest college newspapers in the United States. And for New York City, one of the oldest publications that's still around even today. Right. It, was really founded, it was founded as a bi-monthly, as just the Columbia Spectator, but it would become a daily. So things are starting to look up for Columbia. I mean, you've got all of these organizations that are still around today being formed in the latter half of the 19th century. Yeah. They, I should mention, by the way, we're still talking just men. Here, this is right. an all-male university. I should mention really quickly at this time that the 10th president of Columbia College was a man by the name of Frederick Augustus Porter Barnard. He mm-hmm. would actually be president for 25 years, which is a very long time, all the way up to his death. He actually advocated higher education for women, and he actually wanted to have a shared setting. He actually wanted to have men and women on the Columbia college campus. It never happened. But in fact, when he died, a separate school was actually named for him in 1889. That was the year he died. That was the same year as Barnard School, a school just for women. And it opened at a brownstone just a few blocks down from Columbia College. And it was actually renting faculty from Columbia. Yes. So uh, so they were sharing the same teachers. Yes, that's true. And the building, by the way, is a a brownstone on three 43 Madison Avenue, very close to Grand Central Depot, by the mm-hmm. way. But that brings me up to a good point, because both of these, so now you have this smaller school of Barnard, but Columbia is also very close to these tracks that are just one block away, that a certain Cornelius Vanderbilt is running down into the city, and there are all these trains, and there's all this noise in this neighborhood. You cannot properly study under this particular environment, can you? Well, especially if your name is Seth Lowe and you're the president of Columbia University. (laughs) He became the president of Columbia in 1890, and he really transformed the school. He had an itch to, first of all, get out of Midtown and move someplace a little bit more ideally situated for learning. Again, the same theme pops up. That would make sense. By the way, I should mention that uh, Mr. Lowe had already been the mayor of Brooklyn by this time and would be the mayor of the combined city of New York City much later. Very powerful man. Let me put it this way, Greg. I think Lowe is really important for two primary reasons. Mm -hmm. He moved the campus, which we'll talk about in a second, but he also centralized the administration. He forced the different schools that were affiliated with Columbia to cooperate with each other and to stop competing for funding and things like that. Seems like common sense today. And then in 1896, they officially changed the name to Columbia University in the city of New York. And the undergraduate school became known as Columbia College. Okay, so there's both a college and a university. Yes, and that's the way it is today as well, of course. Columbia College is quite small. Now, in 1897, Lowe wanted to get out of Midtown. He wanted to get to an, quote, urban academic village. Mm -hmm. Now, he found in the upper, upper west side, uh, around Morningside Heights, the former Bloomingdale Lunatic (laughs) Asylum. Right, and it's, it's on an elevated area of Manhattan. It's a, it's a very high area, and because 
it's, well, let's be honest, a lunatic asylum. There's not a lot of development around it, and a lot of the train tracks don't even go by it. So it's, it really is kind of a secluded, bucolic kind of area. It is interesting, isn't it, that when they moved to Midtown, they moved to a deaf and dumb asylum, and now they were moving up to a <laughs> lunatic asylum. Uh, um, Stranger things have happened in this city. Actually, the warden's cottage is still there today, uh, known as Buell Hall. It's still standing. It's a cute little brick cottage. So they built a lot of beautiful, imposing structures in this area for the school, correct? Right. So Lowe hired, of course, they went for the very best. They hired McKim Mead and White as the architects. And this campus today consists of the largest collection of McKim Mead and White buildings in existence today anywhere. Well, that's fantastic. As a matter of fact, Tom, why don't <laughs> yes, we, Greg. why don't you give us a little walking tour here? So give us um, a sort of the greatest hits of these particular McKim, Mead, and White buildings. All right, let's stand in the middle of College Walk, and we're staring up at this giant domed Pantheon-like building called Low Library, Low Memorial Library. But if you look around, most of the buildings have been designed by McKim in the Italian Renaissance style. Mm-hmm. The Low Library, by the way, which you just mentioned, is not actually named for Seth Low, but rather his father's. Good piece of trivia. True. And the, the Low Library is the centerpiece, you could say, of the campus. It's actually stopped being a library in 1934, although they still call it Low Library. Today it houses the university president, the administration, and it's a visitor center. Now, in front of the library, you'll see the steps, which we just call the steps. Sure, the most famous visual part of the the university, I think. This broad staircase that just leads down from Low Library to the central plaza. It is the hangout spot. So when you're a student, (laughs) you hang out there. In the old days, you could drink there. I'm not sure if you can still drink. But (laughs) you would just, you spend the evenings there, you spend the sunny afternoons there, and you see your friends there. Mm -hmm. You, quote, study on the steps. Sure. Of course, nothing happens. Right in front of you on the steps, in the middle of the steps, is the alma mater statue, which was installed in 1902, and it was sculpted by Daniel Chester French. Did you know that there is a small owl that's hidden in the folds of alma mater's dress, Greg? And if you spot it, I guess the first student to spot it every year is is destined to become the valedictorian of the class. I mean, does it hide in a new place every year, or is, is it just a well, new it's just group, such a, clueless group of students? No, with a prize like that, I mean, that is closely guarded secret. Flip around, and you'll see Butler Library. Now, that's the university's main library that houses 1.9 million of the university's 9.2 million volumes. And that's where you ostensibly spend a lot of your time. Now, on both sides of that library, you will see several different student residences, Hartley, Wallach, John J. Fernald, Carmen, as well as on your right is the journalism school. Behind Low Library, you'll find, among other things, Avery Architectural and Fine Arts Library, Pupin Hall, which behind it, which is where a lot of atomic research uh, is carried on in the 20s. A very important building in uh, world history. Is that okay? Was that oh, that's a fast that's, that's perfect. And this is exactly um, this is the campus. I mean, they're pretty much all being completed by this time. That's greeting the twentieth century here. This is the new layout of the new Columbia University. So all you really need at this time is a. Def- Defining 
voice to bring it in strongly into the 20th century. And in fact, Columbia does get that with probably the most influential president of the college's long history here, a man by the name of Nicholas Murray Butler. He was president from 1901 to 1945. And yeah, that's incredible. To, More they, than 40 years. And they had to kick him out. Um, one, you know, an extremely influential man would eventually hold 34 honorary degrees. It was like he was just hoarding honorary degrees. <laughs> um, he had an extraordinary amount of power. The strengths and weaknesses of his character would be reflected in how he uses some of his power. Very connected with, like, Theodore Roosevelt, William Howard Taft. He would even eventually go on to win the Nobel Peace Prize in 1931 for some of his some of the work that he would do in international peace treaties. Now, some of the things that happened under his tenure here at Columbia, I think one of the most significant. Um, is yeah, and we're talking about again over 40 years. This is a 40-year period. A lot of things happened, but the most significant of those, um, 1912, the School of Journalism, um, one of the finest schools. Uh, up at Columbia, of course, started here. It was initially funded by Joseph Pulitzer, the publisher, of course, of the New York World, the master of yellow journalism, which is kind of ironic that he's starting a journalism school and some of many of the tactics. After his death. Well, yeah. Well, many and many of the tactics that he would use would, of course, be later reviled by right. the very students that went there. And, of course, today the school hands out the Pulitzer Prize. Which started in 1917. And, yeah, and Columbia administers those prizes. They were able to start up a lot of great new initiatives, like the Columbia Presbyterian Medical Center, which was the first academic hospital. It opened in 1928. Eight, just a little bit further up north, up in Washington Heights. Now, at 1919, something kind of interesting happens. There was this man by the name of John Erskine. He was a professor. He was a rather a flamboyant. Some called him a dandy. But he introduced a sort of a new way of thinking about education, a sort of casual, sort of direct way of educating students, and something that was a lot less highfalutin, I guess, than how it had been before. Before. You know, he had this one notion that classic literature, for instance, it should be actually read in the language in which the students speak, as opposed to like reading it in official Latin and Greek. He started a course called General Honors that would later get sort of infiltrated into the whole college curriculum and would influence colleges all over the United States. Right. It was this radical concept that you should study the great works themselves as the basis of undergraduate graduate education. So it seems kind of obvious to us now. This was really the creation of the Great Books Seminars. And at Columbia, they call it the core curriculum. It's still used today, but it's really every student at the college knows all about these core classes, which have been taught for the past 90 years. So this started in 1919. Correct. Now, 10 years later, right when the Great Depression was swinging into town, Columbia actually got a huge infusion of money. So all of this upper estate property that it was renting out to all these smaller tenants, of course, as we know, all of this land got rented to J.D. Rockefeller Jr. and eventually, of course, became Rockefeller Center. They would get $3 million in rent from this from J.D. Rockefeller. All that money, that was a great infusion. They were $3 million a year? Three, $3 million a year. That's a lot of money. In 1929 dollars, it really is. With all this money and with all this prestige that Butler was gaining with his own reputation and relationships with powerful men, the creme de la creme of educators 
research would come to Columbia, and they would it would develop research facilities that would attract these facility members as well. Um, you had everyone from like Enrico Fermi, who of course was he helped develop the first nuclear reactor. He helped develop quantum physics. You also had like Lionel Trilling, who was a defining New York intellectual at the time. You had philosopher John Dewey. You had another Dewey by the name of Melville Dewey, who was a librarian at a Columbia. Dewey Decimal System. The Dewey Decimal System is his own little baby that he created himself. Now, I don't mean to gloss. Uh, I mean, like, well, yeah, because we obviously can't sit here, and no one wants to listen to us list all the professors uh, or all yeah, students. And, and and even the all these great acclaim on Butler because he was a very controversial figure himself. He happened to, of course, be a friend and admirer of Benito Mussolini. He tended to have a few anti-Semitic policies, which uh, sort of tarnished Columbia's reputation at this particular time. But I will have to say that, you know, with the help of these rented real estate and with the pull of that Butler was able to achieve, Columbia became one of the most well-known and powerful and prestigious universities in the entire world. And in 1948, a certain Dwight Eisenhower came in as Columbia's president and would remain Columbia's president until he ran off and became until, president. <laughs> right, until he <laughs> ran off to D.C. and became president of the United States, which brings us really into the 60s and 70s. And I will just say these were a trying time for Columbia. Uh, they were a trying time for places all over the country with the Vietnam War, the race riots, urban tensions, especially as urban centers were decaying, and New York certainly was one of those. So this combination of events culminated in 1968, in April, when more than 1,000 students occupied five buildings on campus, including the administration, and shut down the whole place. These famous sit-ins. They were protesting a couple things, the construction of a new gym that was to be built in Morningside Heights, Mm -hmm. and protesting the school's involvement in various classified projects that they were doing for the U.S. government. Mm-hmm. So so in response, a thousand students sat in, the police raided, and arrested 712 people, including 524 Columbia students. Uh, the president, Grayson Kirk, resigned as a result of this. And I would say that the university's morale took kind of a hit. There was a tension there that hadn't been there before. What you're saying is Columbia in the 60s and 70s was just like New York in general during the 60s and 70s, a sometimes not friendly place to be. There were other protests in the 70s, anti-apartheid protests. There was a ban on the, the ROTC program that's still in effect today. Happily, in 1983, Columbia changed its all-male policy and admitted women as students in the college. Now, Columbia College had had some women for years before this who had transferred into the school, but this was the first year that they were actually admitted, and something else notable happened in 1983, of course, Greg. Well, I was, I was going to say this 1983, so wasn't that when our current president, Barack Obama, went to Columbia, is that correct? That is correct, and he graduated in the class of 83. So he would have missed the admission of women, although there would have been women in his classes who had transferred. He was a transfer student himself. It just sounds so old-fashioned. It is. (laughs) And of course, there are no shortage of of controversies that still happen today. In fact, just two years ago in 2007, the current president of Colombia, Lee Bollinger, invited the Iranian president, Ahmadinejad, to come and speak when he was here um, to speak at the UN. Of course, we'll all remember that event and the protests surrounding it. So, still in the news. 
Still in the news, uh, but still a powerful academic and intellectual force. And it's funny if you think about that original decision to locate the college in the city of New York. New York is such a central part of Columbia's identity now that it's hard to even conceive of it not being in the city of New York. To extract it. New York would not be the same without Columbia. And neither would the school. Exactly. Greg, I think we made it. I think we're done. I think we have uh, we've completed our survey, completed our coursework yes. on the Close history. Close your blue books and put down <laughs> your pencils. Class is over. The history of Columbia University. Check out the blog BoweryBoysPodcast.com if you are not sick of Columbia University's history and would like to see some pictures and little extra tidbits that I will put on there this week. And I would just like to wish Greg a bon voyage because he is actually taking a trip in the next week to Paris. Yes. Again, it'll be another month for our next show. I know we just did this, but it's our vacation period. So our next episode will be a month from now, but we have an episode that is going to be very popular. I have a feeling. Just it's based going to on... be fun. It's a little palate cleanser after this. <laughs> yes, exa- I definitely think so. So thank you very much for listening. Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. See you real soon. Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, a central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions.